following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. I am still in awe of all of those kids being up here singing uh, in front of you all. I, uh, I think we don't, I don't always think about how amazing it is that we just got a hundred some kids up here, which is one impressive, but two, they all stood up here in front of a couple hundred adults singing. Think about that. If I said, hey, can I have a couple of you come up front to sing in front of the group? A few of you would be very excited, less of us maybe, uh, but uh, we are, uh, it was so great. We are amazed sometimes how willing little kids are to do hard things. And then when we get older, fear of man takes over. Maybe the reality of understanding how poorly you sing takes over. Just something kicks in and we naturally have a little bit more fear uh, of getting up in front of people. Uh, It's hard. I don't know what the hardest things are for you, but we all have had hard times in life, challenges, uh, certain things that just you look at and you think that was the hardest thing I have ever done. Maybe it was going to college when nobody in your family had, or leaving a place you love, moving to a new place. Uh, for sometimes, for some some people, it would be I asked someone out, and it was the hardest thing I ever did. I broke up with someone, and it was the hardest thing I ever did. Uh, I maybe more seriously, I said goodbye to somebody I loved who passed away, or I fought cancer. Or I served in the military, right? Or I quit smoking. Or, or even more true, I, or more frequently, I, the hardest thing is forgiving somebody. Um, for me, one, one of the hardest things in my life was ordination, uh, which is a time when you have to stand and give a defense uh, of what you believe and give articulation, uh, answer a bunch of questions to show a thorough understanding of the Bible, theology, uh, shepherding ministry, and it's like three plus hours of questions, super intense, and it was not anything that I had a, I'd never seen one, never been in one until I was in it, and it was incredibly hard, so hard, truthfully, I I didn't pass the first time. Uh, I watched a friend do it a month later and reflected on mine, watched him, and had a better understanding of how to prepare, just doubled down, worked harder, uh, studied even more, and went back and passed the second time. Uh, I don't, in my office, you would not see college degrees or anything else, but there is an ordination certificate uh, that's usually on a wall because of how hard that was uh, for me to, to work for and get. There was no TC at the time, and I was just kind of left to myself to prepare. Uh, and I've watched other men go through ordination and similar challenges, not all as hard for them, not because the exam necessarily was easier, but just what is hard for each of us, it varies. What's hard for me might be easier for you. What's hard for you might be easier for me, right? But in each situation, when you are pressed to do something that's incredibly hard, we're faced with the realization that I might not be good enough to pass this. I might not actually have the ability to make it through what I'm facing right now. That's what makes something hard. And we naturally believe in general in life, we can do what we put our minds to. One, because 
that's a thought of youth, and two, because we're American, and that's how we're built. Uh, we just think we can do anything, right? And the, the Jews of Jesus' day, they had a bit of a similar mindset. Uh, they thought with enough work and, uh, you know, force, they could probably overthrow Rome in time. With enough effort, and if, I, if we put our plan together, we can live pleasing to God. We can bring in God's kingdom. And what Jesus wants the Jews to understand as he begins his public ministry is that they're not good enough, right? That no matter how hard they'd try, they'd never be good enough for God. And we're in week two of a series on the shocking things that Jesus said and did. And we're just uncovering more and more how different and radical Jesus' message was than what we usually read. Because I think there's a couple thousand years between him and us, because there's a very different culture between here and there, we sometimes miss the intense, intense words and deeds of Jesus Christ. And so because... Sadly, our understanding of Jesus Christ sometimes comes more from books, from pop culture than it does from Bible. We want to dig in a little bit today to see Jesus as he really is. Last week, Sean Farrell preached on how awesome Jesus really is. And this week, we're going to look at some of the hard things that Jesus said, some of the hard words he preached. We're going to dig in to one of my all-time favorite passages in Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapters 5 to 7, three short chapters, a sermon given early in Jesus' ministry. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up there uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And let me just remind you of the setting. Because Jesus, as I said, is early in his ministry. He has crowds and crowds and crowds of people following him. Not just one group, but a lot, thousands of people. That's what Matthew chapter 4 says. And he's been traveling throughout Galilee, which is kind of northern Israel, teaching, preaching, healing people, proclaiming the gospel. People are already recognizing him as a leader. They're already recognizing him as like a, a teacher, a rabbi. And uh, due to the things he said, there's some hope he is going to bring some change to Israel. They're thinking probably... He could be setting us free from Rome. He's that kind of guy. But rather, as these crowds are gathering, rather than stage a coup, develop and build up an army, go take over Jerusalem, Jesus thinks and does, this is a good time to teach them. And so, on a ridge line near Capernaum, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, which is really not a sea, but a massive lake, it's called a sea, uh, he sits down which is not what you'd expect of an active leader, but that is the, the typical teaching position of a rabbi. And so he sits down, and everyone draws near, and they get kind of quiet. And they're wanting to hear what this amazing guy has to say. And he starts the Sermon on the Mount with these rapid-fire statements called now the Beatitudes. Not what they called them then, it's what we call them now. Eight rapid-fire statements given to startle the complacent and shock the confident. So I, I want you to pick up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to look at a lot of chapter 5 today. Here's what happens. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, here's the Beatitudes, here's the shock statements at the very beginning, verse 5, sorry, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and he talks more about what it means to be salt and light, to live differently than the world around you. And then he talks about the purpose of the law, how they've really been seeking to escape the law, being set free from the law, but in, rather than embracing the purpose of the law. And he begins to just unfold God's desire for his people and the purpose of the law. And we end up in verse 20, which is where we're going to start today. And it's the very heart of of Matthew chapter 5. It's the very heart of everything he says here in verse 20. Look at it. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Now, in that context, on a hillside, if he had a mic, he would have dropped it. Like, it is that intense and shocking of a statement. We don't always think about it when we're reading it. He's got a bunch of mic drop moments in the chapter. This is the first. This is the most important one. And what Jesus wants them to understand, what he wants us to understand, is this, this big one overarching principle for the whole chapter. You can't be good enough for God. You can't be good enough for God. He's going to say it in a whole bunch of different ways, but he wants you to know you can never be good enough for God. He's going to say it again and again. The first way we see it in verse 20 right here is that God demands better than anyone can do. God demands better than anyone can do. Now, the Jews had a saying. In fact, they had a whole bunch of sayings, some very irrelevant to the point, right? All is not milk that comes from a cow. Great saying, not useful in this context, right? <laughs> a saying relevant to this is they, they would say, if only two people go to heaven... One is a scribe and one is a Pharisee, right? These were the supreme, like the most devoted followers of God. And so, in verse 20, when Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, that, that's a little terrifying. Because what he's saying is, is you can't be good enough for God. God demands better than anyone can do. Now today, we tend to think about how to get to heaven as being good enough. Like, am I good enough to get into heaven? Well, I, what I've done, I'm not a bad person. I think I'll make it. That's the way most people think. In, in their day, the common belief was you go to heaven because you keep the law. If you keep the law well enough, you will go to heaven. God had given the Old Testament, the Torah is the law, and then they developed the, the Talmud, right? The, um, I'm sorry, the Mishnah, the oral tradition of all the teachings, and then the, the Talmud, which was the written commentary on what was taught about the law orally. And all of this together became the rules and religion, rules and regulations of the Jewish religion. And so to keep those rules and regulations, you had the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were devoted to figuring out all the regulations. Well, if God says, right, that we're not to do work, well, what if my house 
is on fire and it's the Sabbath. Is it disobedient to put it out? Is that work or not work? Right? They, they tackled all the what-ifs. Um, how rare can my steak be and still eat it as kosher? Right? Like they, they, I don't think that was really an issue, but I would want to know. Uh, so <laughs> they, they tackled all the principles and tried to figure out all the little implications of the Old Testament that would mean we're obedient to God following all of the rules. You're tracking with me? That's the job of the scribes. The job of the Pharisees... We're going to keep and obey and live out everything that the law says and the law, that we believe the law demands. They're busy trying to keep, them, keep themselves righteous, they, and they tended to be proud of their self-righteous endeavors. So these were the strict, the orthodox Jews who, in the time of Jesus, strove to keep thousands of legalistic rules and regulations. And they regarded these things as life and death. It's a bit like the law code we have in the U.S., Right? We have thousands and thousands and thousands of laws. Some are significant. Some don't feel that way. But for them, it's not like, well, I, I might have to pay a fine or, or no one will ever know. For them, this is eternity is on the line if I keep those rules or not. You tracking with me? Most people were not a scribe or Pharisee. They were much more like me and most of you. I'm sure some of you, Pharisee. But most of you, <laughs> most of us, just common people, just trying to do our best, offering some sacrifices to, you know, uh, tied when we knew that we disobeyed, we would think the guy, average Jew in the streets, there is no way I can be like a scribe, right, who, who studies day and night the Old Testament. There's no way that I can live like a Pharisee, keeping all of those rules. I'm just going to do my best and hope it works. Like that, that is, they are, the way that they would think. And so, when Jesus here, on the Sermon on the Mount, says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They're gutted. Because the people who they thought were the most likely to enter the kingdom of heaven were not going to make it. These are the most holy people. Now, heaven forbid, we would think this, right? No one in the room would ever think, well, I'm just kind of normal. But Chris Mueller, he's pretty spectacular, right? He's got to be more holy than me. I don't know how God feels about me, but I'm confident Chris is accepted. Or maybe Paul Washer. MacArthur's so close to heaven, he must be accepted, right? Like... <laughs> We, we, we all have people, we put a little bit on a pedestal and think, well, surely they're going to make it. And Jesus here says, the people who are on the pedestal, your righteousness has to be better than theirs in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes are shocked. The Pharisees are shocked. The people who are normal, who looked up to them, just speechless, don't know what to think. Because the standard is so much higher than they assumed. God demands better than anyone can do. And this is honestly, in, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, probably the most absolutely shocking, gut-wrenching, worrying thing of everything that Jesus says this day. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they made obedience to God's law the passion and demand of their whole life. 
The only way, though, to do that was to make all of the rules external, to, 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 to turn every part of God's law into a checkbox to say, I did this or I didn't do this. I did this, I didn't do this. It's all external then. And while we don't usually use the Old Testament law as our standard, that tendency to make checkboxes for our own righteousness is still there, right? <clears throat> we ask, well, how good do I have to be? What do I need to do in order to get to heaven? What are the lines I need to make in my relationships, right? What are the, the, the lines I need to have in my entertainment in order to be pleasing to God? What are the things I need to avoid in order for God to be pleased with me? We create these rules for ourselves. And Jesus' answer to that question is that if you're going to enter heaven based on what you do, then you better be even more perfect than the very best around you. God demands better than anyone can do. And just like us, the Jews had changed the purpose of the law into external acts. They distorted the meaning. And then, so to bring home the utter unreality and inability that they had, Jesus begins to walk through the law and to say, you're failing here, you're failing here, you're failing here. And that's what we see starting in verse 21 and going down. Because what he says is, your feelings are going to be judged as much as your actions. Your heart's going to be judged just as much as what you do. That's verses 21 to 47. Your feelings are judged as just as much as your actions. Now, if I surveyed the room and said, what is one thing you are certain God will not judge you for. My hope for most of you, maybe all, is you're going to say murder. I'm really hoping I'm not in a room full of murderers. Uh, so that, that is like the go-to safe answer. I've done a lot of bad things, but I know I haven't killed anyone, which is why I think Jesus starts with that in verse 21, right? Because what he says is, this is the law that most everyone denies breaking and that we're guilty of. Look at verse 21. He says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus here, he, he takes the law, he takes a law that most everyone would say, yep, I got that one. If nothing else, I got this one. And he says, no, you actually still violated it. You're still guilty of it. You are guilty of murder when anger hits your heart. Not in the violent expression of it, not when death happens, and what he's saying is, is God's law is not given just to limit bad behavior, but to show and reveal the sins of our hearts. He wants you to understand that it's the feelings of your heart that you're liable before him for, not just what you do, right? To the Jews who had been incredibly fixed on law-keeping, this is just another shock to their system. It's another thing of, wait, what? this one I was free of. What do you mean I'm guilty of? It's incredible, right? 
Jesus is utterly undoing what they understood about the law. He says, it's not about what you do, it's about your heart. And then he moves on to adultery. Another one that most of the group gathered, hopefully here too, would say, not guilty of. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, this level of fight against aggression towards fighting sin is shocking, right? Like if people practice, then some have through the ages, middle ages, even in the 90s, there were some people who did this very thing to fight against sin. If most people did it, there'd be a lot more eye patches here today. Um, but the big shocker to people who were gathered around listening was not what he was calling them to do, cut off your eye, pluck out your Cut off your hand, plug out your eye. Don't, the other way doesn't work. The, the big shock was, was you are as guilty before God for adultery as the active adulterers that you want to stone. He, he's putting the, the guilt of adultery into every person. And saying, this is not based on the external acts that you do, but that adultery, that act of adultery begins in your heart of which you are guilty at the point of lust, right? Now, God had commanded, prohibited adultery, seventh commandment, Exodus twenty fourteen, you shall not commit adultery. The rabbis took this and said, no, touchy, touchy, right? No, nothing physical between people, but lust, like the fantasizing, thinking about it. That's not what the law prohibits. So nothing physical off the table. They address the hands. They don't address the heart, which is what a lot of couples do in dating, but that's another issue, right? When you ask, how far can I go? That, that's not the question. We all do this. We say, how close to sin can I get and not be sin? How, how close to the line can I go? This is the line right here. Where can I go and not sin? Like, how much of a buzz is not drunk? Right? Can I tithe a little bit and still be good? Can I watch this movie if I skip the scenes? The issue is what's the line? What's the action that's being done? Right? And the Pharisees and us often have the wrong idea. Sin is not defined by the limits of your actions, right? Sin is not defined by a certain line that you cross. What Jesus here is saying is that sin happens in your heart. Sin is defined by the leanings of your heart. Jesus says everyone who's looked on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in her, his heart. And that concept of looking talks about an intense, prolonged gaze, and if you think then, well, how long until it becomes a gaze, you're asking the wrong question. Because what he says here, verse 28, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. The Greek word meaning for already is 
already, right? Like it's simple. It means what it means. When you're looking and thinking lustfully about someone or something, sin has already occurred in your heart. It didn't just happen at the point of gazing and looking. That wasn't the start of sin. That was a manifestation of what was already going on in your heart. Your heart was already inclined to dissatisfaction and to lust. So it's not the lustful looking and thinking that causes sin in the heart. It's sin in the heart that causes the lustful looking and thinking. Jesus is moving from action to heart and saying you are just as liable, not for what, you're liable for what you do, but you're also liable for how you feel, for what's going on in your heart. Are you getting this? And he does this again and again and again in Matthew chapter 5. He takes a biblical uh, prohibition or command and he says this is what it says and here's the heart. Here's the heart attitude, right? So you look down. He says, the beginning we saw, sin in your heart leads to anger, hate, even murder. Sin in your heart leads to lust, coveting, and even adultery. And he goes on, verses 31 and 32. Sin in your heart leads to discontent, dissatisfaction, and eventual divorce. Verse 33 to 37. Sin in your heart leads to vows. It leads to promises and eventual lies. Sin in your heart, verses 38 to 42. Sin in your heart leads to demands for justice, retribution, repayment. Verses 43 to 47. Sin Sin in your heart leads to partiality, bigotry, and hate. In each case, Jesus moves from law to heart. He shows both sin and righteousness begin in the heart, and your feelings are going to be judged just as much as your actions. Most people live under the delusion of a farsight comic. That one day you're going to stand before God and you have the cartoon image of it in your head of what it will be like. And you think you're going to answer for your actions. That was what the Jews thought as well. You're going to be judged for what you've done. But the reality is that what you've done will be judged and how you feel. And your heart will be as well. All sin starts in the heart. Oftentimes, Christians memorize Jeremiah 17, 9, right? The heart is deceitfully wicked uh, above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then they don't memorize verse 10. Now, put it in your notes because for whatever reason, verse 10 gets left off. Look at, look at it. We'll start in 9 again. Get the flow. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? <laughs> I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the man. Even to give, to, uh, test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Your heart, your mind, your feelings are going to be judged as much as your actions. They're the root of all of your deeds. Everything you do is rooted in your heart. So for a Christian, when you go to fight sin, the best strategy in fighting sin is not to cut off, stop doing the action, but it's to go after the heart. If you stop doing the action, you don't address the root, it just becomes manifest in another way. Right? John Owen wrote a book, uh, Old Puritan wrote a book called Mortification of Sin. He describes this as getting at the root of sin. And it's practically like we, we experience this. I, we, we bought a fixer-upper in November-ish, December. And we, we moved in. I have weeds in front of my house that seem to live off of Roundup, like it's fertilizer for them. <laughs> and I, I, I whack them down with a weed whacker. We, we pour stuff on them, and they flourish. How do you get rid of those things? You have them. How do you get rid of them? You dig out the roots. 
right? Like that's the only way to kill that stuff. You dig out the roots. Sin is the same way. How do you deal with sin? You attack the roots. You go after the heart attitudes, not just the leaves and the flowers. God focuses on our hearts, and he judges that just as much as your actions. Earlier in Jeremiah, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 20, it's in your notes as well, it says the same thing. O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings and the heart. And then Jeremiah calls out on Judah and Jerusalem, let me see your vengeance on them. The shocking message Jesus declares again and again in Matthew chapter 5 is, you can't be good enough. You can never be good enough for God. In order to enter heaven, in order to, to stand before God and be accepted, your righteousness, your holiness has to be better than anybody in this room, anybody you've ever seen. For the Jews, it would have had to be better than the most religious people in there that they ever saw who devoted their lives to obeying God far better than us. And God demands you do better than them if you want to enter heaven. They work their tails off to satisfy God's commands. And Jesus comes, he just undoes them by saying, it's not just what you do that you're going to stand and give an account for, but it's also your feelings in your heart. It's not just what you do that matters, but your heart. And then he, he really kind of puts a bow on it in verse 48. Because in verse 48, what he says, and this is the third thing he says, is you're called to perfect righteousness. Oh, you want to enter heaven? Here's the standard, perfection. You want to enter heaven? You want to be with God? You, you think you're doing good? Are you perfect? Verse 48 of Matthew 5. Therefore, in light of all this, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the point that Jesus has been driving out through the whole of chapter 5 is your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and Pharisees to the point that you're flawless. You're, you're perfect. There's nothing wrong to be found in you and he's been leading the crowd from shocking truth to shocking truth also that they would realize they are spiritually bankrupt that that we have no hope that we are that it is utterly impossible to meet god's demands on our lives and so from here to the very end of the sermon in chapter 7 jesus is going to continue to tear down the misguided attempts of the religious to earn God's favor. But this, this is the crux. This is the core. This is the most devastating part of the whole sermon to those listening. The shocking truth that you're called to perfect righteousness and you can't do it. You can't ever be good enough for God. Right? And at the end of this sermon, what, what we read at the tail end of chapter 7, the crowd's response after all of it, says they were amazed. That nobody had taught like him. He, he, he taught with authority. And I think they were left with a mix of, like, despair and hope, right? Because, because if you've hoped in Christ, you, you know that mixed feelings. Jesus presented that there's no way you can reach God on your own. And he did also present that there was a need for external righteousness, for, for another who would be our Savior. If you want to enter heaven, this is the requirement. You have to be as perfect as God is. There, there's nothing short of that. Heaven is the home of God. Nothing less than perfection can enter it. And, and many of you know 
What a miserable treadmill it is to try and live continually in a way that you're aspiring to be pleasing to God. I'm I'm doing as much as I can and be as good as I can. That's acceptance through works. And you never really know if you've done enough for God to be pleased. Jesus here in the sermon, he answers the question. He gives you the assurance so that you would know. And the answer is, you will never do enough to be pleasing to God. Ever. Right? That is it. It's like a carnival game you can never win. You, you can't ever be pleasing to God. You can never do enough. You have to match his perfection in order to enter heaven, which is the same truth that they began with way back in Leviticus when he said, you should be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Like it's that same standard of holiness that's called to. The whole purpose of the law was to point them towards their utter inability to satisfy God's demands on their own. You must be perfect. You must be holy. You can't be perfect. You can't be holy. And the solution many people come to when they see that this is what the Bible says is, well, that can't be what it means. There simply has to be something else, right? Jesus didn't really mean that we're to be perfect. He understood none of us are perfect, right? I think what he's doing is he's setting us a target because we never hit the target, but at least we'll try to come close. That's not his point, friends. That's not what his his goal here is. He is telling us the truth. God's standard is perfection. We will never hit it because the only perfect person is Jesus Christ who never sinned. All this talk of the law has been to drive us towards the gospel. That's what Galatians chapter 3 says. It's in your notes in verse 24 that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we would be justified by faith. What is the role of the law except to show us our inability to please God and our need for the righteousness of another? The only way to survive the judgment of God is to hope in Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life we never could who was able to satisfy all of God's demands. We acknowledge that we can't be good enough, and we believe that Jesus is good enough to satisfy God. And we cry out for forgiveness, and we confess that our actions, our words, our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings, they're all tainted by sin and by self. Can't be good enough. You know in your heart that when you stand before God, you will fall short. You're not going to do any better. And you're responsible to God for your life, right? You you know there's nobody to blame when you stand before him. There's no excuse that will be adequate for what has happened. Not maybe for some of the things you did, but definitely not for the way your heart has felt. Because Jesus teaches that a heart for sin leads to hell. God's standard is perfection. He judges every person by that measure. He judges every person by the measure of perfection. He demands better than anyone can do. And what's amazing is that he provides the righteousness that he requires. Do you get that? Jesus is our substitute, not just in death but in life. He provides the righteousness that he requires. The one who wrote the law that condemns us offers us the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, wherein he takes all of our sins upon himself and he provides and clothes us in his righteousness, a righteousness foreign to us, so that when God looks on 
those who have hoped in Jesus Christ, he sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness and not in our own. Because our own is never going to make it. The standard of heaven doesn't change. Perfection is still required. Holiness is still demanded. But it's Jesus' holiness and Jesus' perfection that's put upon us. It's the best news ever, right? Christ becomes our substitute. So that anyone who hopes and puts their faith in him is forgiven of sins and is able to be welcomed into heaven by God. And all of, the, all of the demands and the requirements are paid through Christ. When you repent and believe, you are made new. The Spirit of God enters you, he transforms you, he seals you, and he begins to prepare you. He gives you pleasure and obedience you never had before. You recognize the, the very concept of obedience changes from something that you're doing in order to gain God's approval changes. It's no longer like an attempted means of salvation. Obedience for the Christian is strictly a consequence of salvation. It's an overflow of gratitude, of a life lived desiring to please the one who saved us, who's shown us grace and favor, who, who has given us hope we never had. As Christians, we do fight sin aggressively in the same way. We, we begin to apply some of the principles that he leads out, lays out in Matthew chapter 5. We go after the root of sin. We aggressively pursue holiness but not to be saved, not to be saved, just out of gratitude and a desire to, to please and not bring reproach on the name of the one who saved us. All of our desires to obey spring from that, right? That's why when we sing uh, Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross, we, we say, um, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's a response. That's what obedience is. And the main goal of Jesus' sermon was not instruction about how to live as a follower of Jesus. He wanted you and the Jews to admit their total need for a Savior. Their total inability to be pleasing to God on their own. Their inability to follow all of God's laws. And instead, to look to another to look to Jesus Christ and his righteousness as theirs and he's pleading with you even today if you've never done that to confess your sins to quit trying to do it on your own and to hope in Jesus Christ to put all your faith in him the one who not just lived righteously but died for our sins defeating death and the power of sin and then was raised to new life now sits in heaven waiting to return and to welcome us. This is the hope and plea of every Christian. Christ's perfect righteousness. This is true when you are a new believer. This is true when you've been in Christ for 60 years. This message never changes. This is our hope in life and death. Christ alone. Christ alone right? That is where we're heading. It is freeing. It is life-giving. It is joy-infusing, all by grace. So let me, let me pray and just give thanks to the Lord for his marvelous grace through Jesus Christ. Father God, we know and recognize that there are a lot of challenges and hard things in life. You have called us to full obedience. We are utterly unable to obey on our own. And you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, to complete that which we couldn't, to satisfy your demands, to be reconciled to you. 
God's at work in your heart right now. I pray you would cry out to him in confession. That you would put your hope in Jesus Christ to respond now. Lord, the hardest work, the hardest thing in life, the thing, the one thing we're utterly unable to do on our own is to be saved. We can never be good enough for you. And we are in rapturous joy, overwhelmed by the reality that your son, Jesus Christ, was sent to live the perfect life we never could, to die and take your wrath on the cross for our sins, paying for it, because we, we deserve that. And Lord, he, he did that for us, so that all who hope in him are forgiven. Lord, we are overwhelmed by the grace you have for us, doing the hardest work for us, so that, Lord, you provide the requirements that your law demands. And you allow us now, you open our eyes, you've opened the eyes of many to know and love Jesus Christ. To look ahead towards death and see it just as a transition to true life, eternal life, life with you. We are so glad that this life is not all that there is. We are so glad that we're not left trying to satisfy you on our own. But we can rest in your son and what he has done for us. It's so freeing. It's so good. We thank you for that grace today. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.